Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, Beto O'Rourke says he's running for president. We're going to talk a little bit about how he got to a yes on that question. Plus, we're going to talk about an emerging litmus test in the 2020 Democratic primary, campaign finance, where candidates raise their money from, uh, how they're getting it, and where O'Rourke fits into this new test and, and how his 2018 campaign uh, kind of shaped a lot of what a lot of his fellow, now fellow 2020 candidates are talking about on the trail. Plus, we're going to talk about New York Senator and 2020 candidate Kirsten Gillibrand. She's been an outspoken advocate in the Me Too movement. But Politico reporting has uncovered how her Senate office handled or mishandled, critics say, an allegation of inappropriate conduct inside that own office. So we're going to have our reporters who broke that story earlier this week here to talk to us about what happened and how it is going to play into the 2020 campaign. As always, quick note here, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. Today, that's March the 14th, so it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome in our guest for our first segment here on the line from Iowa. We've got national political reporter David Siders. Hey, David. Hey, good to be here. All right. And here in the studio, Maggie Severns, who covers money and politics for Politico. Hey, Maggie. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Thank you so much for being here. So time for our first data point. That is $80.3 million. That is how much money Beto O'Rourke raised when he was running for Senate in Texas in uh, 2018, uh, 2017 and 2018, I should say. Uh, big record for a non-self-funder. Uh, a lot of it raised in small amounts online, speaking to the massive amount of interest there was in in that campaign. And that interest uh, culminated, in, well, or at least culminated so far, I guess, in what we saw today, which is that O'Rourke, despite having lost that Senate race to Ted Cruz in 2018, uh, is launching a campaign for president of the United States. Uh, David, you've reported uh, as deeply as anyone else on, on Beto O'Rourke's presidential ambitions. So how is it? Tell us a little bit about how a three-term congressman coming off a failed Senate bid uh, uh, thinks that he can compete in the most crowded Democratic primary in memory. And, and that national following he built in 2018 has a lot to do with it. Well, I think it's totally the fundraising uh, and his ability to raise money from outside of Texas. You know, I think what's interesting about this 24-hour period more than maybe any other candidate is that all these other top-tier Democrats had national profiles to some extent uh, before getting in. But O'Rourke's whole ambition is really based on the money demonstrating that that um, national commitment to him. So we should know in 24 hours if he's for real or not. And if he raises a significant amount of money, then I, I think the the judgment will be that he's more than just a spark. But if he comes in, you know, even with respectable, but say Hickenlooper level dollars, uh, I, I think it'll be a real sour turn. So, so maybe more than any other candidate, the first 24 hours for him seem crucial. And, and that was reflected in 
how he was behaving in the last few days, starting to call and text donors personally, talking to operatives where he really hadn't been before, um, his team preparing kind of top-level supporters to send donor links to their supporters and their networks. Uh, they, they know that this is a, a really important moment for him. And it's it's interesting you're talking about the the uh, the donor appeal, but w- what's what's different with you know maybe the way we're talking about this than we would have ten or twenty years ago is that that donor appeal is really we're, we're talking about donors who are giving twenty forty bucks at a time, right? And and it, the Beto had a, uh, extremely uh, good success in in twenty eighteen, kind of mobilizing people to to chip in like that in in a way that created this this upstart campaign. Yeah, and I think a, a cynic would say uh, the reason he's able to do that is because he's he's young and he, he speaks in kind of a you know a, a, a Gen X way, and he's he's white, uh, so he doesn't maybe face criticism from uh, reporters the same way a woman would, or certainly a woman of color. That'd be the, maybe the cynical way to look at it. Uh, the other way is for say driving off into the middle of the country and leaving his children and and, and his wife right. alone. <laughs> And there's something about him that he's really, one of the reasons he is so broadly appealing is that his policies are not clearly defined. I mean, he is something of a Rorschach test for for Democrats. They, they see what they want to see. And, you know, in the Senate race, he's criticized by Democrats for being way too progressive, for not moderating his views in Texas. And then as soon as that race ends, you start hearing criticism from, from some of those same progressives saying, actually, this guy's a right winger. And if the truth is somewhere in the middle. But if you're trying to create broad appeal, there is some maybe political um, value in not having policies that are specifically defined, but relying more on on charisma, uh, which is certainly his his brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to see how that flies in in the Democratic primary. And of course, it's a very different situation for him running, having gone from running against Ted Cruz. Uh, to to now competing for against other Democrats uh, for something, Maggie. I want to bring you in here because one policy where O'Rourke, like where we know absolutely where O'Rourke stands on, is campaign finance, and he part of the way that he built up this big movement in 2018 was by. Um, being very loud and proud about uh, how he wasn't going to take money from corporate PACs, how he, you know, he he was trying to run as a campaign finance purist, uh, and we've seen a lot of uh, Democrats in in twenty in the twenty eighteen midterms, Bernie Sanders in twenty sixteen in the presidential race, and now in the twenty twenty presidential race, we've seen a lot of Democrats kind of pick this up and run with it. It's actually kind of been really the first policy flashpoint. In the campaign in a lot of ways. Yeah, it really has. Um, And first, I would kind of point out one really interesting thing or one very Beto thing is, you know, he really ran what he said was no packs, just people, which I just think kind of speaks to what a good marketer of himself he is that, you know, people kind of talk about campaign finance. And I think that that message the Democratic Party has really struggled to kind of wrap its arms around that message. I think that voters are really kind of, they're concerned about corruption. Um, and you saw Trump really seize on that well in 2016. Um, he, you know, he talked about the swamp. I think that Bernie Sanders did a really good job kind of seizing on that. And he, you know, everyone knows the $27 with Bernie Sanders, and he kind of used that to leverage it over Hillary Clinton. And now we're seeing uh, Democratic candidates really pick it up and try and run with it. And the big, one of the big questions is kind of who's going to succeed and who's going to do, um, who's going to kind of successfully brand themselves as a candidate who kind of 
is someone who's a reformer, because I think that that's someone that is something that voters want. And so we've seen people say pretty much every candidate has said they're, they're not going to take corporate PAC money. Um, some candidates or a lot of candidates are saying that they don't want a single candidate super PAC, which is something that happens where kind of people who a candidate maybe knows will decamp and start a super PAC. Um, and since those people know the candidate, they kind of know how to correctly kind of choreograph the moves of that super PAC in a way that's very helpful to the campaign. Um, in, in 2016, pretty much every Republican candidate had one of these, yeah, right? 20, and we're yeah. really not seeing that so far in, in 2020. Yeah, for the and we're not seeing many of them because, you know, those they're really they're really helpful. Um, these PACs can raise huge, they can raise unlimited amounts of money and they can spend and they can really give you a lot of leverage over your opponents. Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, Beto is a great example of kind of the potential, I think, power and also kind of some of the potential pitfalls of this approach. You know, he's someone who successfully raised huge amounts of money, I think, in part because small dollar donors felt like they wanted to help him because he was running what he called this kind of people powered campaign. At the end of his campaign, there was also a super PAC that came in and spent for him. And Beto was able to say, well, I don't know anything about this super PAC. Um, I don't know what this group even is. I And he was able to kind of deny any association with it. Um, that super PAC was just run by Democrats in Washington. So there are some kind of Sometimes these um, limits that a candidate puts them on themselves can be a little bit thinner than they seem. Mm-hmm. Well, and 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 this is kind of a, a different situation than some others. But but he, I mean, he's he's telling the truth there, right? The, the, the this isn't something where he was kind of winking and nodding at the um, at at this group. Uh, yeah, this isn't something where he was winking and nodding at this group, presumably. But um, you could also, I think that we could see a situation in the Democratic primary where people wind up with a lot of big money spending. It's kind of where I'm going. And mm-hmm. I think that we're just going to have to see where it goes. I think with Beto, another vulnerability for him is that he has kind of said that he is not going to take any PAC money. But uh, last cycle, he also was a big recipient of oil and gas money. That's another kind of vulnerability for him. And when you say oil and gas money, this this ended up being a big conversation controversy in, in yeah. like December and January when O'Rourke for president stuff was starting to bubble up. But oil and gas, it's not that the companies were giving him money because companies can't give money to candidates, but it's people who work for the for oil and gas companies. Yeah. Right? And, and that was how the analysis was. Um, and and I'm, yeah, I'm curious. So when you give an FEC donation, you list your address and you list your employer um, when you give a donation to a campaign. And so when it gets recorded to the Federal Election Commission, um, there's this information about you. And the what kind of came out was that in aggregate, um, Beto, who's from Texas, had received uh, – he was one of the top recipients of – donations from people who worked in the oil and gas industry. Mm-hmm. And that could have been anyone from, you know, someone who's working in an oil field um, to executives. And there right. were some executives in that total who had given him these maximum campaign donations. So it kind of raised these questions and people got into this debate. And I think we're going to see this debate surface now that we're in the presidential about kind of what should he be accepting? I don't think that there are many people who would say when people kind of saw this total of oil and gas money, there was this kind of moment of shock, you know, of mm. how could this person who says he doesn't take corporate, you know, he doesn't take PAC money, be accepting all this oil and gas money. Um, then, you know, people kind of got into it and said, well, these are all these are all different people, the guys from Texas, you know. Um, but I think that one thing that we're going to see in this primary is kind of, you know, everyone is trying to be the most pure candidate. Everyone is trying to be the candidate of not special interests. You know, if you're saying that you don't take 
take money from drug companies. At what point can you not accept money from, you know, maybe you don't accept money from executives and drug companies. Okay, what about, you know, what qualifies as an executive? What Mm -hmm. qualifies as a special interest? You know, we're going to see people kind of pushing each other. I think candidates really prodding each other on where the lines are. Yeah. David, I want want to come back to you just to, to, to take us out here with with respect to to O'Rourke and his place in the race and where this you know his, his brand on campaign finance puts him in the race can you can you kind of place him in a continuum on, on the Democratic Party in terms of you know do we have a sense of what other candidates he's going to be uh, competing with most strongly for support it's interesting because he has both the the small dollar support but also a lot of interest from you know there's some of the Obama Biden people who definitely are interested in his candidacy they see a a similarity there um, for for whatever reason I've talked to donors who said that said that they had been waiting uh, in, in fact for Biden to make up his mind but uh, on the other hand those donors are likely to spread their checks around so and to contribute to more than one one candidate so I think that his average donation probably remains a little bit higher or probably will remain a little bit higher than Bernie Sanders, as it did in the, the 2018 race, um, but still, uh, obviously, like many of these other Democrats, um, chasing chasing lots of small dollar checks. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be interesting to see his impact on the race, and it's going to be very interesting to see how this uh, th- this this purity test on raising money affects everyone going forward. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us on the phone. We'll let you get back to uh, chasing our work around Iowa. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And Maggie, thank you so much for stepping into the studio. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, we're going to move now on to our second data point, which is three. There were three weeks last summer between a staffer for Senator Kirsten Gillibrand reporting sexual harassment to her superiors, and then that staffer resigning in protest over how the office handled the allegation, uh, the investigation, and then uh, the fallout, ultimately. We've got two of our reporters here to talk us through uh, what they found when they looked into uh, this previously unreported incident. Uh, Alex Thompson, good to have you here. Thanks. And Daniel Strauss, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And also here in the studio to talk us through, we have senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Hey, Charlie. Hi, Scott. All right. So let's start with some context here, guys. You know, for, for background, let's first start with Senator Gillibrand's public stance and her national reputation about, about allegations of, of harassment. And she's been a national leader on this front, right, Alex? Yeah. For the last several years, she has made it probably the defining issue, which she, um, uh, at least publicly speaking, you know, she led the fight on military sexual misconduct, uh, suggesting taking uh, certain prosecutions out of the chain of command, bringing in independent prosecutors. And she has brought this back up, you know, when the Me Too movement really gained uh, traction right after Harvey Weinstein. She was very outspoken. Obviously, she was the first to call on Senator Al Franken to resign. And now that she is begun a presidential bid, she has made advocacy for women the centerpiece of her campaign. She has dubbed it Woman Plus. She has said that the country is ready for the first unabashedly feminist campaign. She has said that this is her lane. This is her issue. And um, which makes the fact that a woman, a young, like 20-something woman uh, in her office resign in protest over the office's handling of that signature issue all the more uh, interesting and uh, you know potentially uh, politically damaging. Yeah, well, well, 
uh, walk us through what you found as you uh, as 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 you and Daniel broke the the news of this uh, this episode on on Monday of this week. This had never been reported before. So what we found was um, on the woman's last day, she sent a pretty scathing resignation letter to Senator Gillibrand's personal email address that just really laid into the office for its handling of the investigation, said that she felt that she had been devalued, said that she had gone against her her public stances. Um, the senator and the staff never responded to the letter. Um, essentially, there are there are two parts of this investigation. There's the first when she reports it, and they launch an investigation. They There are two claims to it. One is that the man involved, uh, his name is Abbas Malik. He has been her longtime driver since 2011. Jill driver. Jill Brand's driver since 2011. Um, he, she officiated at his wedding. Um, he was also given the title of military advisor in 2015, despite still largely remaining a driver. He has been by her side for a long, long time. Um, by all accounts, he was excellent at his job. Um, Senator Gillibrand then tells him that he's going to be put in a supervisory role over this woman. And the woman then reports later, alleges that he then begins uh, making sexual advances that are unwanted and all are rebuffed. But she interprets this as him trying to use his new position in the office to get her into bed with him. And she then reports this. They, she also reports that he had been making inappropriate comments in the office that were demeaning to the woman and his female colleagues, calling some of them fat and ugly, um, rating women that came in for interviews. And she reports both of these things. Um, they then do an investigation. They say they don't have enough evidence. There's too much of a he said, she said. They can't substantiate the sexual harassment. They find some evidence that he'd been making inappropriate remarks. He then doesn't get the promotion, which would have come with a raise. But um, uh, but he keeps his job. And she, at the time, feels like, oh, well, they probably did everything they could. But soon after, she begins to think that it wasn't necessarily a fair process. And she um, starts getting disillusioned. And Daniel, can you tell us a little bit about uh, that process and uh, of of the investigation that she became disillusioned with, and and what if any, you know, rules there are about how to how to run these sorts of things uh, in in the Senate. I mean, it's interesting actually. What we found in this is that there is no hard. Uh, blanket procedure throughout all Senate offices. Each Senate office has their own handbook for handling misconduct allegations. They're essentially each operating as like their own small business, right? Basically, but but standard practice is to act immediately and to go to the Senate Employment Council, which is the lawyer for all Senate offices, to quickly move in and investigate. Uh, uh, allegations like this. This is what uh, chiefs of staff we talked to said uh, is standard procedure. It's interesting though because part of Gillibrand's work in uh, chain or in working to overhaul uh, sexual harassment policy at the Pentagon has been to bring in a third-party investigator. Her argument is that generals and people in the chain of command investigating similar accusations have a natural bias. And the argument of critics here, too, uh, of advocates for uh, fighting sexual harassment is that on Capitol Hill, the, the standard investigators, the chief of staff, the deputy chief of staff, have a similar bias in place. And, and it turns out, Alex, that in, in the course of reporting this story that, that you guys were, were working on, 
you you found corroborating witnesses that the office never got in touch with because they, in the course of their investigation, didn't talk to former employees. Exactly. The woman at the center of this, she said she pointed the office to two former employees that she said could corroborate her allegations of inappropriate workplace conduct. And the office, um, for reasons that are still not clear, um, never reached out to them. Now, we reached out to them. We actually reached out to more than 20 former employees to see if we could find a pattern of bad behavior on the part of a boss. And uh, and we found it. And one of the two people that the woman um, that the woman pointed the office toward, she said that a boss had regularly called her fat and ugly to her face. That at one point he made a joke about rape to her. And when we presented the office with this information, they then reopened or opened a new investigation, depending on your perspective, and they fired him last week. If they had the woman, it's important to note, did not report the rape joke at the time. But if the office had conducted the investigation and had uh, last summer by reaching out to former employees, they might have found out that information and we wouldn't be here now. Charlie, can you uh, can you kind of illustrate the the political implications here as you see this? I mean, uh, Gillibrand's uh, campaign. She's obviously she's a well known senator. Um, she's raised a lot of money in the past. Her campaign hasn't really caught fire yet. She's pretty low in a lot of the polls. But um, this would seem to strike directly at the heart of what she's trying to make her campaign about. Yeah, it's a problem for her on a couple of different levels. I think if you take a look at the 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 moment that serves as the backdrop for this. Uh, scandal. It is a uh, a moment for, for for the nation, for the Democratic Party, a reckoning. Uh, and we've seen in state legislatures across the country, and even in in Congress, uh, members have stepped down or been uh, forced out of office for various indiscretions, uh, for conduct that happened in their uh, office, and there has been a political penalty to pay depending on the circumstances here. And obviously, uh, Senator Gillibrand was not an offender here, but it was the handling. Um, and but for her, against that backdrop. Uh, given the specifics of her candidacy, given the issue set that she runs on, given her branding, uh, it's especially damaging. And uh, that is why uh, it, it is for them uh, it's sort of a, almost a, a seven alarm fire to get this right, because it's so integral to who she is as a candidate and what she has been saying out there on the on the trail, because you can take a lot of hits as a candidate for not being consistent in your positions, but you can't be inconsistent on your central core message. And that is the risk here with uh, what uh, Alex and Daniel have reported. There, there's a, a, a quote. I mean, she, Gillibrand's been asked on a number of occasions, uh, a, as you brought up, Alex, about um, why she was so uh, uh, quick, or at least quicker than other senators, I should say. Um, to to call for Senator Al Franken's resignation a couple of years ago when he uh, ha- had been hit by multiple um, allegations of sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, and um, her her response to paraphrase was basically that we, you know we we can't treat our friends uh, uh, any differently than we, we as Democrats, we as feminists we can't treat our friends any differently than we treat our adversaries, or else what's the point? Um, but, and, and this, you know, it, it's, I guess it's not clear how involved Gillibrand was in this investigation, but clearly the, the folks operating it under her direct, 
uh, uh, command appear to have mishandled this. Well, and it's interesting because the, her public response to the story so far has been that she has no regrets, that she has complete confidence in chief of her former chief of staff, Jess Fassler, who was technically, he did not take the, the lead on the investigation, but he was heavily involved in it throughout it. And now, um, and now he is her presidential campaign manager. She has said she has complete confidence. She, you know, to Charlie's point, you know, I think she realizes that you, you, at least they're they're saying that they can't admit a mistake on their signature issue, and um, they've been adamant that they ran a thorough uh, thorough process. You know, in terms of what she said about Franken, which you brought up, you know, one of the lines that came up was that none of it is okay; that we have to draw a line in the sand, and um, it is interesting. You know, the fact that they fired him. Uh, the driver, a boss, last week suggests that perhaps they did make a mistake, but they have been publicly adamant that they did not. You know, the the, the political rhetoric on these issues, just confronted with a real life uh, situation, just doesn't it 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 doesn't always translate over. Uh, it seems like it's certainly certainly in this case, yeah. Right? I mean, that that's Alex. What you just said that's very absolutist rhetoric, and that's not that's not. The, the result that we saw here. Right. I mean, that's the most jarring part about this. This office knew had basically uh, a, a an entire uh, mantra that it's based on for handling this situation. And it doesn't seem to have followed that at all. And and I think that and that leads us to the end of of this three week saga last summer, right, which was the beginning of of, of your story on Monday, uh, Alex and Daniel. It's this letter that uh, that the the former aide wrote uh, and and uh, sent to Gillibrand as she was resigning about um, her how she had this was part of the reason that she had joined this office in the first place and that she was so, so disappointed in in what had happened that she was leaving without another job lined up. Well, and it's you know at the heart of it, the story of this young woman is is sort of a story about becoming disillusioned with, you know, she describes herself, she, um, as uh, being devastated by the 2016 election, that she really wanted to work for another woman um, after Donald Trump won, that she um, was attracted to Gillibrand's office in large part because of her public stance, and that throughout her time there, whether or not it was listening to Abbas's sort of private rhetoric, and then up to the point when they handled both the uh, initial investigation and also the investigation into her claims of retaliation, which um, you can read a little bit more about in in the full story, you know, she begins to just think that, and, and then also the fact they never even responded to a resignation letter, that they just kind of treated as like, well, I, I you know, she didn't even know how to react. I think she felt that if if Gillibrand's office can't get this right, then nobody in politics can get this right. And, you know, I think she's actually considering leaving politics altogether. Wow. Well, thank you guys for coming in to, to uh, talk us through that story. Great reporting. Thank you, Alex. Hey, thanks, guys. And thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Scott. Charlie, thank you as always. Thank you as always, Scott. And as always, a big thank you to all of you for tuning in to listen this week. Here at the end, we're going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan. Joshua Starnes of Houston, Texas, is going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Joshua. 
Listeners, we found Joshua because he emailed to say he was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, please let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again next week.